This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello and welcome to Newsmakers. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. She ran for governor in this past year, losing in the Republican primary, but Rebecca Clayfish is not finished with politics. She is instead refocusing her attention on getting conservative candidates elected. Through her 1848 project, she has already recruited 25 additional candidates for the upcoming April ballot. She joins newsmakers today to talk about her future plans, lessons learned by the GOP in the last election, and what she thinks makes a good candidate. Welcome to Newsmakers. Thank you. I hate to be right off the bat the guy to correct you, but yes. we're closer to 50 candidates today. 50? I think when we talked on the phone it was 25. You must have been working hard. Well, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a lot about that. We we have to say that we're doing this interview on January 3rd. We know over in the Capitol there's an inauguration happening for the governor. It's been a long year for you. I know things didn't turn out. How, how are you doing? Great. I'm delighted to be back as the president of the 1848 Project. And even though I was convinced that I would head to corporate America and that my return there was going to be a, a terrific fit, I was convinced by some good friends that I was still needed in recruiting good candidates. Our essentially farm team for the Republican, the conservative movement in the state to run for local office. And so I took our not-for-profit, the 1848 Project, narrowed its focus so that we are focused on the education of conservative candidates. And so we're focused on recruiting and educating, training candidates who want to run for everything from school boards all the way through Wisconsin State Senate. You know, uh, there were a lot of conservatives that were disappointed in some of the results in the in the fall elections. Do you think there are any lessons for the GOP in what happened last fall? I think candidate quality matters. And you heard Ben Shapiro say it over and over, and there was an echo chamber for that sentiment. Candidate quality does matter, and when you look deeply at that, you can see why the 1848 Project is so necessary. I want to recruit high-quality, credible, conservative candidates to be our farm team today so they can be our statewide, our constitutional officers tomorrow. Are there any lessons you've learned in the last year that you're taking into 2023 personally? You know, I, I try and live pretty regret-free, Lisa, and so I can honestly tell you that I left it all on the field, and I hope that that is a lesson that I can teach others. And I think that that speaks to candidate quality, someone who really wants what they, they tell constituents, that tell taxpayers, they tell voters they want. They truly, in their heart, believe that public service is noble and an opportunity to really tr truly serve their fellow man and make a difference. And I want to impart that lesson on other candidates. 
During your run for governor, you did something that many people consider to be unusual. You did endorse many. I think it was about 115 local candidates. Nobody really had ever done that before. Why, why focus on local politics? Because it matters. I mean, as a, as a mom and just a, a homeowner and parent in a school district, um, if you take a look at your daily life, what in your daily life is not affected by the decisions made by government at some level. I mean, it affects the, the air you breathe, the water you drink, uh, how many holes are in your cheese here in Wisconsin. <laughs> it affects whether there's a pothole out in front of your driveway. It affects, you know, what type of cars you are able to buy and what regulations come alongside them. You know, the, the types of prices that you pay from everything from gasoline to a new construction on your home. And so if all of these decisions are affected by government, shouldn't we care about who's in government? In some ways more important at the local level than even at the state level? From the local level all the way up to who's in Washington, D.C. But I would argue that at the local level, you've got the folks who are most accountable to the people at home. If you've got your local school board member or your local alderman or mayor who you can corner in the produce department of your local grocery store, that is real accountability. Do you right advocate there. for cornering your local elected official? No, I advocate for showing up at the meetings. I advocate for speaking up. And if people refuse to listen, then sure, if you happen to bump into them and you're standing in front of the, the apple section, by all means. But I do advocate for people showing up at their town council and their school board meetings, showing up at the aldermanic debates, and making their concerns and their voices heard. And if they are not being heard, and if they don't find a candidate that they can truly support with vigor and, and gusto, then I would urge them to consider running for office themselves. And so that's kind of what this 1848 Project movement is all about. Sometimes you need to encourage people to stop yelling at the TV and the newspaper and, and the internet and just fix it themselves. So you mentioned that there are some 50 candidates on the April ballot that you help to recruit. What do you look for in a good conservative candidate? I would say passion is number one. There are a lot of people I will call initially, and they'll say, well, I'm, listen, I'm not a constitutional attorney. I, I'm not qualified to run for political office. Yes, you are. You are if you are passionate about the issues that you are clearly talking about. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten your name. Because if someone had not mentioned that you were speaking passionately about a local issue, I never would have known that this is something that you could potentially be a terrific fit in a vast puzzle that we know as, as governance. And so passion is number one. Then I would also say life experience. And by life experience, I don't mean being a constitutional attorney. I don't mean being an attorney. I mean, you know, do you have a, a child who is going to be in the local school district? Or are you a local employer and you find that the school is not producing students who, once in adulthood, 
you feel comfortable hiring? You know, are you someone who is a passionate property owner and wants to make sure that you have your own family rights respected by government? Or do you feel like public safety is taking a back seat to other spending priorities? Or do you feel like everything is a spending priority and you want to be able to keep more of your own money? Those aren't things that require a constitutional attorney. Those are things who require people who have passion, who want to be involved, who are interested in being lifelong learners, who are unafraid of walking into a new situation and learning Robert's rules and learning what government budgeting looks like and taking the lessons that they apply as family members, people who do their own household budgets, and using the lessons that they have learned in government because that's real accountability. And I think that's what people are hungry for. You know, you founded the 1848 Project in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the website it says its uh, focus is to recruit, train, and do continuing education for candidates who become Wisconsin's conservative policy leaders. Do you have goals for the 1848 Project in 2023? Like, what would you like to see happen in this coming year? Well, this coming year, we have narrowed our focus greatly, and we are focused almost exclusively on these local candidates and their education. And, you know, hopefully, after elections season in April, we'll have plenty of opportunity with some good victories under our belt to do the continuing education that, you know, I I just kind of mentioned, you know, you may not know what Robert's rules even are. Hey, if if you weren't an FFA member um, and you you had no student government experience under your belt, this may be your first exposure. Like elected office 101 stuff, but then do you do policy support as well? We will do policy support and it will actually develop into individual groups. We already have a parents group under our belt and they will inform our school board and our aldermanic and even, you know, some of our other candidates, state assessment state senate because we want to make sure that the people are leading and we want to make sure that the constituents the taxpayers the voters are the ones having their say you know that may lead to very different looking caucuses than what we are used to in the state of wisconsin right now we're used to state assembly and state senate caucuses in political parties and a lot of what they do is driven by individual members but then also some of our conservative think tanks and, and democrat leaning you know liberal leaning think tanks for the governor's office and the other two caucuses. But think for a second what it would look like if we had like-minded school board members banding together saying, okay, well, we ran on the idea of assuring that we had SROs, school resource officers, back in the school district. That's what we ran on. And now that we have the majority on the school board and we've been able to accomplish our main goal, well, what's our next act? The 1848 Project is going to be there with our parents' organization to inform our organization of school school board candidates, yes. And just as we built the forward agenda last year after doing more than 50 meetings across the state with the people, constituents all across Wisconsin, we will continue to listen to the people, constituents all across Wisconsin, so we can educate our newly elected local officials about what their next act 
should be. Sure. You, I know you have a training, at least at least a training on January 22nd, yes. trying to help those candidates as they get uh, uh, t move toward April. What are your best tips for candidates? Like if you had t top three uh, tips, what would they be? He who does the most doors wins. That is my number one tip. And if anyone is considering running for local office and is saying, you know, I'll do anything, you know, I'll make fundraising calls or, you know, I'll develop my own literature or I'll design a logo, but I just, I, I can't knock on doors and actually ask people for their vote. I'll say, maybe a different position in a campaign would be the right one for you. Knock on doors. You gotta knock on doors. Um, I would say next thing in a campaign is make sure you have a solid idea of what your priorities are. You know, I, I was talking to a candidate initially and, you know, talking to him about, you know, what he would want to do as an alderman. He said, well, you know, I'm, I'm knocking on doors and I'm just saying, hey, you know, I just want to re represent you. Um, I, I want to take your ideas. What are your ideas? Which is great. Being a, a listener is outstanding. But you also have to have some passion in your heart about what you want to accomplish. Because if you want people to join you as a leader, you know, follow your lead, you've got to have some ideas on where you want to lead people to. So I would say knock on doors and then have ideas, at least three ideas of what you want to do. And number three, be unafraid of fundraising. Um, sometimes these races, shockingly, um, are, are causing people to dig deep into their friends and family lists. And so I would say be unafraid of making what are sometimes awkward phone calls when you call, you know, mom, dad, cousins and say, hey, you know, you invested in me in my high school graduation. Now I have a dream of representing people. You know, here are my top three things I want to do. Here are the number of doors that I'm going to be knocking on every single day. Will you consider giving me a hundred bucks? I am going to buy some literature. It gets it. easier after you do it a couple of times. Listen, I'm I, I'm in sales. I sell policy for a living, <laughs> and so you know, I've made I, many of those calls. I've made many of those calls, and you got to be unafraid of of getting a no on occasion. Mm -hmm. But if you honestly have passion and you're willing to knock on doors and ask people for their votes, and if you honestly have you know two or three direct goals that you're going to head toward immediately then making a sale, like, can I have $100 to buy some lit? It should be a pretty easy one to close. You know, you mentioned your uh, support for school board candidates, and I think about 48 or so of those 115 you endorsed were local school board mm -hmm. candidates. Uh, in school boards since the pandemic, things have gotten a little bit more partisan and heated at school board meetings. Is that a good thing? Do you see that as, as progress? I don't think they've gotten more partisan. I think we've awakened to the fact that they've been partisan for the last 20 years. And the same people who were howling about me getting involved in local races are the people who have made these races partisan for the last 20 years. It just so happens that the silver lining of the pandemic is that there are a bunch of conservative moms and dads who awakened to the idea that their school board candidates we're not simply running because they had children's best interests in mind. They were running fueled by money that came directly out of liberal organizations. And what these conservative parents did was say, hey, listen, I don't want my kid 
to have learning loss anymore. I don't want this extended. You know, I, I want my kid to be able to choose, or I as a parent want to be able to choose whether my child wears a mask at school. I want to make sure that the learning materials that my child is exposed to at class are what I believe to be age appropriate. And so if I have to go to the school board meeting and I have to voice my concerns, if I have to open records request even some of the materials that my child is being exposed to, if I have to run for school board myself, I will do it. Because Are there some ways that you hope conservative, conservative candidates change local education policy? Yes. What, what's the specific example of that? I think a specific example we've already seen, and that is more parental involvement. I mean, we have seen legions of moms and dads, I mean, to the point where you saw the President of the United States um, get involved because the National Association of School Boards essentially was calling on Joe Biden to say, hey, investigate the moms and dads of America. They're practically terrorists for showing up. No, they're being good moms and dads for showing up. So, and so, so more parents at school board meetings, more, more parents more communicating. More parents in, involved. I would say more accountability to moms and dads on curriculum, more exposure for parents to what curriculum actually is. And I'm not saying have like a lineup of parents, you know, sitting in and watching a teacher every day. You don't want a dozen moms and dads in the back, you know, watching the classroom. But at the same time, those parents should know what's being taught in the classroom. I would say the same thing of spending priorities. We need to make sure that money is going into the classroom and not money spent on you know, layers and layers and layers of administrators. I would also like to see more school resource officers and certainly more mental health professionals in our schools right now. When you think of everything from the learning loss and this epidemic of anxiety and depression, particularly among young girls, that was brought on by what we saw happen during COVID-19, based on decisions made by school districts and other governance leaders, you know, you've got to take into account that kids are suffering from anxiety and depression at incredibly high levels. And then you also have to take into account that we have violence issues. And so we need more mental health professionals. We need more school resource officers because we have to build relationships. I would also say we need more trades education in our classrooms here in Wisconsin because we've got a worker shortage and we need to encourage our Wisconsin students to choose the jobs that are available. A lot of work to do on education. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, women sure. in politics. Uh, unlike other states, Wisconsin lags a little bit behind uh, kind of the percentage of women in politics uh, still don't have a woman governor. Um, what would you say? I tried, Lisa. <laughs> what would you say about how much harder it is for a woman to get elected? You know, uh, there is a study done by Rutgers University called Poised to Run that I like to cite when I'm ever asked this question because unfortunately in 2022, I am still asked this question. It seems that women have to be asked to run more frequently. Women don't necessarily look in the mirror and see a leader of government, a politician, looking back at them. And so more often than not, women must be asked to run for political office. 
I told my executive director yesterday that the on the 22nd, our, our panel of people who have kind of been there and done that um, winds up, it's, it's all women. And um, she said, um, is that okay, you know, just, you know, calling this to your attention that you only have women on, the, on this panel? And I'm like, Meh, I don't care. Um, because, you know what, years ago, that would have been largely unheard of. Right. The more you see people who have your lived experience succeeding in the way you would, you know, potentially consider a path for yourself, the better off you are because it means that that path has been trampled a little bit. I hope that my run as a Republican has made life a little bit easier for the next woman who comes behind me. And I hope that when she does run, um, she'll reach out so that, that I, can, I can grab her hand and, and pull her up. Because I think one of the cruelest things, whether it's in business or education or in policy governance, is for people to not reach back and pull up the next guy and instead feel this weird, you know, competitive spirit about protecting their legacy. Now, your, your legacy really ought to be about how many more people can you boost up beyond what you achieved? And I hope that's what I'm teaching my girls. And you feel like that's one of the things you achieved last year was just the ability to pave the way further forward for the next woman? No, I was running for governor to be governor. Looking at the stats on uh, women in politics from the Center for American Women in Politics, uh, 73 women ran for office in Wisconsin in 2022. This year there will be 40 women in the legislature, making up about 30% of the state legislature. Uh, local and municipal offices, we've been talking about local races, 28% of elected positions are held by women compared to 72% for men. Um, what do you hear from women about their concerns for running? Why is it that they maybe aren't running at the same rate? Uh, family, number one, first and foremost. What's this going to do to my family? Or I can't handle the responsibility with also being a... I would say, number one, what's this going to do to my family? And when people look at my life experience, I am the cautionary tale, right? I mean, nobody wants their kids to go through my, what my kids went through. And I, I would say that my, my case was, was pretty shocking. Um, I was not even expecting... Um, that level um, toward my daughters. Uh, but when women look at that, they feel like it's practically a no-go zone. I mean, if, if you're doing something because you want to help your kids, but they have to go through heavy fire and it may wound them, and, and it could be permanent, do you do it? Um, in my case, I did. I, I was not expecting um, that level of attack for my children, I was expecting it on me, fine. You know, I came to politics. You know, if you don't have, you know, the armor of God around you, then you don't belong there in the first place. Um, but when women look at that, they wonder, do I, do I put my family through this? Or do I instead support someone who, you know, is, is in a different season of life? And I think that's one of the greatest barriers to convincing moms, at least, with children in the home, to run for political office. What do you tell them about that based upon your experience? Is there any way you could have prevented that? Um, there was no way I probably could have prevented what happened to my kids because they were not decisions made by me. Other people made those decisions to go after my kids, and um, 
Unfortunately, uh, they are vortex public figures, though um, one was underage. But that is all in the past, and I'm concentrating on moving forward. And one of the ways you move forward and one of the ways you convince women to run, despite seeing what they know to be you know, my reality, is you, you ask them to analyze the current set of circumstances faced by their family, others, and the world's kind of on fire for moms today. And if they have kids at home that they're worried about, one day those kids are going to look at them and ask, what did you do? Mom, what did you do when the world was on fire? So was it worth it for you to run? Yes. 100%. I have no regrets. Good to know. Um, Do you have concerns about enough women running for office, being participants in politics? Do you think we're at a disadvantage by not having more women? I do think we're at a disadvantage by not having more women because I believe women bring a different um, cache of leadership skills to the table. Um, And I think that that's really, really valuable. You know, the folks are over there getting inaugurated today, right? And everyone is talking about their spending priorities, and everyone is talking about their particular tax package. You know, I had my own tax package, but included in mine was getting rid of the tax on feminine products and diapers. And, you know, those are things that I think women, women think about. Um, it's, it's essentially a, a dopey, archaic thing that some dude came up with a million years ago and it just doesn't it doesn't work and it it feels well it doesn't feel it is like weirdly gender specific and you know some of those things nobody nobody thinks about unless um they have a life experience that looks like mine or or yours and so i do think it's important to have women i do think it's important party too to have moms Mm -hmm. at the table and it's not just that um i think that there are are certain values that that women hold dear particularly around a conference table that you know may not necessarily be a default of a male you know sitting next to you And I think that's important. I think it's good to have a mix of men and women at the table. I think it's it's good for government. I think it's good for the state. You know, you mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation uh, um, the fundraising part of being a candidate and how important that is, but how difficult it is. You know that past governor's race, most expensive in history. Outside money, what, $78 million in the governor's race alone outside money. I just want to ask you, what do you think the impact is on politics of all of that money? I hate it. Is it is it bad overall? Should it be out? Should there be less money in politics, or we just have to live with it? The, the problem here is that so few people now think of it as sport or entertainment to come to the public square and listen to the political debate. 100, 200 years ago, that was what people did for entertainment. They would literally walk to a public square and listen to a political debate. Now, we televise debates. We try to make it really easy for people to watch, and the viewership is ridiculously low. I mean, I, I had... So that's how you reach voters, is through paid... You have to reach voters through paid, and and now there are so many different ways that you do paid advertising because there are so many different ways people get their information, and people are so busy, and 
the idea that you have to cut through their busyness and then you have to reach them on the platform where they want to be messaged to and then you have to find the issue on which they are going to be interested enough to sit through 15 or 30 seconds of you talking with them is very, very challenging. Well, it's a necessary evil unless you want poorly informed voters going to vote or people to not vote at all, which is tragic to me because we live in America. It is such a blessing that we are able to vote. And it is such a blessing that we can go to meetings and speak our minds. And I think like I said, silver lining of COVID, there are so many more people who've realized that this is their blessing and that they can go and voice their opinions and that they can contribute to a political campaign or volunteer to walk in a parade or run for political office themselves. It's, it's a bummer to me that more people don't show up and watch the debates. I can't, t- I had great supporters, you know, loyal supporters um, who had no idea that I was doing debates. Um, I did four debates. People didn't watch in, in legions. And that may be my cup of tea, to, yeah, maybe yours, to, to watch a political debate. But it's not everybody's. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any New Year's resolutions or goals, personally? Um, I would say to... Oh, these are going to sound really dopey on, on the show. Right. I'm sorry, It doesn't everybody. have to be about um, politics. Right. So um, I, I want to settle into uh, a home church situation <laughs> that is not, you know, watching church from a different state regularly um, because that's what we've tended to do. Mm-hmm. Because during COVID, I think everybody, you know, started to worship a little bit differently. And, and that's important to your family. It's super important to us. I mean, my faith grounds me. My faith, I think, grounds our family. Um, it's what keeps me one extra layer accountable because if you're accountable to God first and everybody else and, and yourself next, then I think it it makes you a better person. I mean, in, in my mind, in, to me, um, so that, I mean, you know, the, the regular every single year, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to work out. Um, <laughs> I'm not every other person. And I, sa- I said, um, you know, this, this box of Christmas cookies needs to be gone by the time I get home. And I get home, and sure enough, there are the they Christmas cookies. So yeah, and so didn't have a good day yesterday. I had a cookie. I have to ask this question. It'll be our final question. Have we seen the last of you in Wisconsin politics? Well, I think I'm involved in Wisconsin politics every day. I think I'm involved in Wisconsin politics every single day by encouraging people and hopefully, you know, buttressing their careers, their ideas. I'm not going to make any pledges or predictions about my personal future. Right now, I am focused on helping others succeed because I think the movement succeeds when you reach a hand back and you pull somebody else up. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Have a wonderful 2023. Thank you, you too. And thank you to the viewers of Newsmakers. Be sure to tune in again as we sit down with the decision makers and highlight the issues that are important to all of us. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin.
Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civics broadcast network, providing gavel-to-gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol. 